Hi folks, Wooden Boat Dan here. Just wanted to give you a heads up. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded several years ago. So some of the phone numbers, email addresses, website, links, and time-sensitive information are no longer valid. Please keep that in mind as you listen. If you'd like to contact me, my email address is woodenboatdan at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Hooked on Wooden Boats, weekly podcast episode number 16. I am your host, Dan Matson, and this is the world's first podcast fully dedicated to celebrating the art, craft, history, and tradition of wooden boats. Welcome back to another show, folks. It's great to have you back. Our listener base is growing. Wow, I say that every week because it's true every week, which is pretty exciting. And this week, I'm starting to get a lot of emails from listeners and people that come to the website, so that's really cool. On today's episode, our featured segment is an interview with Tug Busey, spelled B-U-S-E. Tug is a chap that I met uh, about, well, I heard him speak about two months ago at the Center for Wooden Boats in Seattle, and... Then I interviewed him at his house last week in Warm Beach, Washington. And Tug has a fascinating story. He built a 14-foot wooden pram, a Bill Garden design, and he sailed it 4,000 miles through the river system of uh, the Midwest in the U.S. and the Gulf of Mexico and up to the coast of Maine. So stick around uh, for that interview. It's about 40 minutes in length. You're going to like it. Try it, you'll like it, like they used to say. I forget what that was. Was that for dentine gum? I'm not sure. Anyway, (laughs) let's see what else we got going here today. Uh, Let you know that next week is an interview I did with Dale McKinnon. Dale is a lady that built a 20-foot dory, a rowing boat with a sliding seat in it. And she rode that sucker from Ketchikan, Alaska to Bellingham, Washington, 800 miles. She's the third woman to do that since 1937. And you're going to want to hear that interview because it's a fascinating story. That'll be next Thursday. I'd love to connect with you. There's lots of ways to do it. I've mentioned this every week, and I'm going to continue to do that because... I really wanted to get to know my listeners and get your input on my show and get pictures of your boats and get your feedback on what I'm working on and really try to connect. Uh, You know, the internet thing is great, but uh, it feels like a vacuum unless you're really connecting with people. So you can connect with me by sending me an email to dan at hookedonwoodenboats.com. You can find me on Facebook.com slash WoodenBoatDan and Twitter.com slash WoodenBoatDan. The other way I would really love for you to connect with me, I think it's really the best way, is go to my website to the homepage and in the upper right-hand corner, actually just about two inches from the top on the right hand, there's a little button you can click to subscribe to my email list. And uh, I'm adding to that list. I've got about 37 people on there now, and I'd like to see that grow. And about once or twice a month, I send out an email with some resources and links and some fun videos and things. 
And it's a way for me to get to know your name and at least have your email address so I can correspond with you about wooden boats. Because that's what this is all about. And we're having fun with it. And we means me. <laughs> it's hard to say I all the time. Anyway, so please subscribe to my email list and send pictures of your boats uh, through email. I'd love to get some pictures and see what projects you're working on and what fun things you've done. As I mentioned earlier, I've gotten several emails this week from people that are enjoying the show. One email I got is from a gentleman named Charles Toswill. Charles lives in St. Thomas, Ontario, Canada, which is near the north shore of Lake Erie. And he uh, was listening to my podcast, heard me talking about the little canoe that I'm going to build. And so he was giving me a little feedback. He's built a little... Um, 11 or 12 foot Pirague. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct. And he was talking about uh, marine epoxy. He was on a budget like I am and trying to save some money. So he used marine epoxy from Duckworks. And he talks about how, in his opinion, that the uh, a marine epoxy is a marine epoxy. And if you can buy one for a little bit less, why not save some money? Kind of like whether you buy Exxon gas or Shell gas, which one is really better? Is it worth paying more for one than the other? Maybe so, maybe not. So he's got me thinking there. The other interesting thing he talks about here is the paint that he used for his boat. He did some research and he found out that latex house paint uh, worked really well. And he actually did some tests here. In fact, I'll read you a little section of this. Uh, he says, in all his research, I discovered that some paints don't like to adhere to epoxy finishes. Uh, some oil-based or alkalide paints don't work with epoxy. I did an experiment with an epoxy-coated piece of plywood. I painted one part with oil-based paint and another with latex. After several days drying time, I could scratch oil-based off with my fingernail, but I could not do the same with the latex. Do some internet searches and you'll probably find the same thing. Latex will cover your boat and adhere well and gives you an unlimited choice of colors. It is available in high gloss, as you know, and don't forget that, especially in the U.S., for some companies, exterior house paint accounts for a large part of their sales. Hence, much of their research and development money goes toward that development. Their goal is to make a paint which holds up against the elements like rain and snow, keeping from fading and looking good. Sounds like just the thing for our boats. So anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at that option when I get ready to paint my canoe, which will be hopefully a few months from now. Because I know the uh, marine paints are very expensive. It's like, I think in their 20 or 30 bucks for a quart. And a good uh, exterior latex house paint. I think you could buy a whole gallon for about the same price. So thanks, Charles, for writing that in. I really appreciate it. So anyway, I think that's about it for our news and announcements today. I'm going to go ahead and start the interview here with Tug Busey. Hope you enjoy it. Take it away, Tug. Okay, it's December 26, 2011. I am sitting at uh, down at Warm Beach with Tug Busey. Tug, uh, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you very much. Great to have you. Great to have you. 
Uh, I heard Tug speak at the Center for Wooden Boats uh, last month in November. He uh, did an amazing trip in a small boat that he built. Uh, but before we go there, Tug, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and how did you get into boating? And just give us a little personal history, if you would. Well, I was born into boating. I mean, my, my parents boated since long before I was born. And I was raised in Warm Beach, Washington, as you pointed out, near Stanwood. Mm-hmm. And my parents have a house right on the on the water, right on Port Susan Bay. And so I grew up splashing around in the bay. I grew up building uh, rafts out of driftwood and all that kind of stuff. My parents have a 30-foot retired wooden tugboat that I went on for the first time when I was 10 months old. Mm-hmm. And so um, salt water and, and uh, voyaging in boats, particularly in wooden boats, has, I mean, I've been doing that my whole life. Okay. So uh, tell us about your growing up years uh, and give us, tell us about your name too. Well, when I was born, my my real name is Michael, but when I was born, all my parents' friends knew that, you know, they, my parents had this tugboat and so they started calling me Tugboat Boy. And eventually uh, that was, my name was shortened to uh, just Tug. Mm-hmm. And it's a nickname that stuck with me my whole life. Everybody calls me Tug. I mean, except my bank. You know, they, 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 everybody who knows me calls me Tug. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was really handy back when I used to have a landline. I mean, I just have a cell phone now, but when I used to have a landline, you know, I'd get calls from solicitors and stuff, and they said, you know, is Michael there? And I, and I knew right away they didn't know me. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. So tell us a little bit more about your parents' tugboat, which I understand they still have. That's right. Well, I call her my older sister um, Mm -hmm. because she was built in 1961 on Lake Union, and she was one of the last classical wooden tugs to be constructed, intended for actual service. She, She was not built as a yacht or a pleasure boat. She was actually built as a tugboat, a boom boat. So her, her job was to uh, herd logs into rafts and pull them to sawmills, back when that was really common. Uh, tugs of Maggie B's class are almost extinct now because uh, now so much of that is done, you know, on, on big bar Like, well, it's done by trucks. The trucks haul the logs to ports where they're loaded onto giant barges. And so you get you don't get much of the the small tugs pulling small loads uh, of logs and rafts to mills mm-hmm. like used to be common practice all across Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. That used to happen all the time. And now, now you almost never see that anymore. Yeah. So, so tugs that were designed for what Maggie B was designed for are, are almost totally obsolete now. You almost never see them. But um, Maggie B. was designed as a small tugboat by uh, the great Pacific Northwest boat designer. Uh, may he rest in peace. He just passed away this year at the age of 92, I believe. That's William Garden. William Garden, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so because Maggie B. had been designed by William Garden, and I grew up on Maggie B. and knew what a good boat she was, 
I realized that um, that I wanted to build a boat that was designed by William Garden. Okay, all right. So, uh, so you went through school here at Warm Beach, and then you went to college in Maine. Is that right? Yeah, I, I I'm a real uh, history buff, uh, particularly an American history buff, mm-hmm. and so. I've been interested in the Civil War all my life, and and so I, I did research and and I found yeah. See, for, uh, most people who are interested in the Civil War, they'll they'll either take they'll they'll take either side, or they are fiercely loyal to the South. And and I'm one of those oddballs that is I'm fiercely loyal to the Union. Mm. And you know most people aren't, but I, I I am fiercely loyal to the Union. And the funny thing is that you know if you want to find uh, high-ranking Union officers that are uh, people who you'd want to emulate, it can be kind of tough uh, to find that. And so I found uh, this this man named Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who has since become famous because of uh, the movie Gettysburg. Okay. which came out in 93 and some other things. But he's basically become uh, an officer that people who who like the Union, who like the North, can... Because he, he was a, an officer and a gentleman, and he was a professor at... Excuse me. At um, this college called Bowdoin College, which is in Brunswick, Maine. And so I did research, and I found that not only does Bowdoin still exist, it's one of the best schools in the country. So I applied early decision thinking there was no way I was going to get in, and they let me in. Wow. So the rest is, is history. I went back to Maine to school, and then I wanted to be a history professor. But again, I did my homework, and I found that, uh, that there's an incredible amount of competition for history teaching positions. I mean, there's something like... I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but I mean, incredibly, you know, a hundred history PhDs for every one job that's available, <laughs> or something, something like that. Uh, so, what what I realized would be a better deal was, was I'm also interested in film production, and I went to film school in Southern California, okay, at uh, Chapman University in Orange, California, and I became a film professor because. Most people who go who, who get an advanced degree in film production don't want to teach; they want to work in the in the industry. And so, if you've got a, a, a terminal degree, an MFA, Master of Fine Arts in film production, and you want to teach, uh, the the odds are a lot better. And mm-hmm. so that's what happened. And I got a job at Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa teaching film production okay all right so you moved to morningside and you were teaching there so tell me about this how this idea of uh, building a wooden boat and uh, sailing it four thousand miles through the river system and up the east coast how did that how did that start excuse me well actually the, the my desire to build a wooden boat is as old as i am hmm I mean, even when I was a tiny little kid, I would go down and I would take a hammer and some nails and try to pound a couple of drift logs together and make a raft. You know, I mean, I, I always wanted to build a wooden boat. 
Yeah. And having grown up on a wooden boat, I always wanted to build a wooden boat. So that idea, that general idea, has been with me my whole life. But when I moved to Sioux City, you have to understand that when I grew up in Warm Beach, my parents lived right on the water. Yeah. Literally, right on the water. When I went to school in Maine, I was about one mile from salt water. Mm-hmm. When I was in Southern California, I was about 10 miles from salt water. When I was in Sioux City, I was 1,400 miles from the nearest salt water. <laughs> and, I mean, there were, you know, there, there were some lakes. I mean, there's like the Okoboji Lakes, and then there was the places where they dammed the Missouri River, and there was reservoirs that you could, you know. But, I mean, in, in terms of cruising grounds, uh, you know, Iowa, South Dakota, Nebraska, they're not famous for having places where you can do a lot of sailing, you know, and cruising. So so that was something that that I could really keenly feel. I remember going to uh, the Henry Durley Zoo in Omaha and uh, with a friend of mine, and we, we went to, they had a little aquarium, like, set up for the zoo. And I walked around the corner, I just kind of froze in this sort of surprise and excitement and my friend was like what what what's what's the deal i said that smell can't you smell it she said yeah it kind of stinks i was like yeah it's it's salt water it's like i can smell the smell of salt water and it was they they had you know um, basically you can order bags full of salt water minerals that you can dump into fresh water and mix it up and make it approximate Seawater, really, and Funny. that's what they had done at the zoo. Yeah, but 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 it smelled like salt water, mm-hmm. and I so I just about went crazy being landlocked in the middle of the continent. I mean, if you look at a map of North America, Sioux City is about as landlocked as it gets. Yeah, I mean, North Dakota is closer to salt water because of Hudson's Bay. Mm-hmm. So, um. But what I realized was there was a water escape route. The Missouri River flowed past Sioux City, went right past Sioux City, and you could go all the way down the Missouri and then all the way down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. And when I realized that, I was just like, wow, okay. So that's how the idea was born. And one of my friends said, well, it's like a, it's like a really long hill. It's like, yeah, you can, you can go down this really long hill. <laughs> And, um, and yeah, I mean, it was. It was, uh, according to the Army Corps of Engineers, it was about 1,700 miles by river from Sioux City to the Gulf of Mexico. And so that's how the idea was born. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but then I realized that I didn't have to stop there. I, there was uh, this protected waterway that went, basically it goes from Brownsville, Texas on the Mexican border all the way up to New York. And there are some gaps in it, but it's called the Intercoastal Waterway. And it's a protected waterway that consists of um, bays, rivers, lakes, you know, things like that that have been connected by this series of canals. And... When I found out about that, I decided... See, I mean, I, I wanted to 
when I left Sioux City, I wanted to, you know, go home, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, and I, I didn't really want to go through the open Pacific Ocean in my 14-foot sailboat. So I realized, I looked at Maine as like a second home. Okay. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go home to Maine mm-hmm. because that I can do. Mm-hmm. I can go up the East Coast, up the intercoastal waterway. So, so had you already built your boat at this point? Well, while I was a professor at Morningside, I, I was a professor there for five years. And so while I was a professor at Morningside, I, I built Adventure. That's my oh. boat's name, Adventure. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I built her while I was um, working at Morningside over the summers. Oh, okay. Had I not had the summers, uh, Adventure would still be sitting in a garage somewhere half-finished. Right. Because, I mean, those big chunks of time were really, really nice to have. Yeah, yeah. In order so to... you started building her before you decided to make this trip, it sounds like. Or kind of as you were deciding? or. Well, I, I, I started... I, I actually, the, 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 the idea for the trip came first... I when I watched the waters of the Missouri River rolling past Sioux City, heading towards the sea, you know, every day I, I could see those that that water, and I knew that you know, in about three months, that water would be in salt water, mm-hmm. you know, at the Gulf of Mexico. I that's so. So the trip came first, and then I started to investigate different designs that I thought would work for that trip. Okay, yeah. But I, you know, and and a bunch of people suggested a bunch of things. Uh, there was this uh, this dory that a guy suggested. Uh, mm-hmm. Another fellow suggested a Whitehall style boat that he had designed. But I knew I wanted William Garden. Okay. Because right. because of of Maggie B. And then the other thing was that uh, Maggie B's my parents' tugboat. I don't know if I mentioned that. Okay. But yeah. yeah. Um, but there were a number of other considerations. See, I wanted to make sure that I built a boat that could cruise on her own and be relatively comfortable by herself, but who would make a good companion for Maggie B rather than a competitor oh. for Maggie B. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, um, eventually my, my parents say that I'm going to have Maggie B. And so when I have her, I don't want to. I didn't want to build a boat that would compete. I see. With her, yeah. but that would. And Maggie B and Adventure are perfect together. Oh uh, yeah. Maggie B can tow Adventure, and uh, then you can anchor Maggie B, and you can go exploring and Adventure sailing all around. And yeah. But obviously, Adventure can can go on her own. She yeah. did. And Adventure you know. is the fourteen foot pram that you built for this trip. Yes. Sorry. Oh, I. Yeah. Yeah, keep no forgetting problem. what I've said. No I have it. Yes, Adventure is is the the boat that I built. The fourteen. So tell us a little bit about Adventure, her design and building that boat. Well, Adventure was designed originally, or, or well, I should say the the Commodore Trunion class sailing pram. <laughs> that, that's that's what Garden called her when he designed her. Really, uh, she was originally designed as an open boat, and as uh, a day sailor training boat to teach uh, young people how to sail. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, basically, William Garden's friend, a man named Garrett Horder, came to him and said that he wanted you know, a, a training boat for his grandkids to train them how to sail. 
And so basically he wanted a boat that would perform well under sail, but that would have very, very good stability. Uh, he, he wanted to train, uh, Garrett Horder wanted to train his grandkids uh, on, a, on a sloop rig, so uh, a, a mainsail and jib, rather than a cat boat. Uh, which just has one large mainsail, mm-hmm. usually, um, and so 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 his demand. I mean his his specifications were quite demanding. Uh, the boat had to be very short, so it could be stored in a garage, uh, but very stable. But also had to perform well. Had to have enough buoyancy to float the crew if swamped, hmm. um, and also he wanted reasonable cost of building. And Garden wrote in an essay that he wrote about the design, um, everything worked out very, very well with this design. He said, except that we missed by a mile our nod towards reasonable cost of building. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he said, you know, th- this, due to the amount of work in these one-off wooden boats, and he said, if they were tooled up and built out of fiberglass, they would be a reasonable value. Yeah. But... I didn't really care so much about the value. I I, I just I wanted to. Uh, the, the irony of me building a sailboat was that I had never really sailed. Oh. Um, I mean, Maggie B is a powerboat. Yeah, right. She's a tugboat. So, I mean, I've been on the water all my life. I have a lot of experience on the water, but but not in sailboats. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the the the, the key points about that design was the fact that that boat was designed for beginners it was designed to train people how to sail mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if you look at a cross section of the plans it, it really is incredible adventurous design is amazing um, because the wetted surface the part of the boat that's underwater is very minimal unless she starts to heal if she starts to roll over then there's a whole bunch of of area in her, in her sides a whole bunch of freeboard that that hits the water and keeps her from rolling over. Oh. So she's incredibly stable. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many 14-foot boats could have two people who weigh over 250 pounds stand on the rail and not capsize? Really? I mean, my, my friend and I, who we were both pretty hefty people, Yeah, we stood uh, right at the beam on the rail, and she didn't... She didn't didn't go didn't dip the rail under. Really, yeah, interesting. Incredibly Super stable. Super stable. Cool. Super stable. Cool. But you know, and she's <clears throat> she's not a speed demon. I mean, she doesn't doesn't go very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, under sail, I would say maximum speed is maybe four knots. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. That's probably being generous. I mean, three and a half mm-hmm. probably max. Yeah. Under power. You know, the little four-horse motor I've got, I can maybe get her up to four and a half, maybe five in mm-hmm. still water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, but she wasn't designed for that. She, yeah. You know, she yeah. was designed to be stable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then she also, one of my favorite features is she has a, a, a gunter, a sliding gunter rig, which basically means you have a short mast... And then you have a gaff or a sprit that's like a, um, well, if you, if you have a gaff-rigged, um, you know, 
cutter or cat boat or something like that where there's a a spar or you know basically long piece of wood that supports the top of the mast well that's basically what i've got except that that extra spar uh, acts as an extension of the mast and basically goes straight up and so what it does is it gives you a much taller you can you can put your main sail much taller up uh much higher up while still having a short mast and so people have asked me that that rig is not very common in north america it's it's a lot more popular in europe and so people ask me well why why would you go through the trouble of making a rig like that why why wouldn't you just um build a tall mast well there's a couple of reasons one is it gives you, when the rig is down, it gives you a lower center of gravity, which means you're less likely to capsize at a mooring in heavy weather. Mm. So there's, there's that. But uh, the two major advantages, uh, one of them is the spars are a lot shorter. They stow within the length of the boat to make it a lot easier for trailering. So there's that. And then the most important feature on my trip was that simply by letting out on the halyard or the line that raises the mainsail, I could shorten the mast by, you know, about 10 feet. Oh. And so I could go, well, not shorten the mast, but shorten the rig, you know, by about 10 feet. And that that allowed me to go under bridges hmm. uh, that were really short. That, that allowed me to go under overhanging trees. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. I see. So, so that was pretty handy design. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Adventure's design is a true tribute to William Garden. Uh, it was just an incredible design mm-hmm. that he came up with. And then, I, I, <clears throat> with Garden's approval, and also the approval of another boat designer named Paul Gartside, uh, I modified the design slightly. I put a, a deck on her, not, not a very big deck, but a deck, and then a cutty cabin, a l- little cabin for storing, um, for, for storage, basically. And the disadvantage to that is that added some weight in the bow. Originally in the bow, it was just supposed to be a seat. And so, but then again, I'm, I'm really heavy, and so when I, when I sit aft, she, she writes herself and sits on her lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there was that, but uh, but uh, Wooden Boat Magazine, when I, I wrote a story for them, actually reclassified uh, her as the Adventure Class Sailing Pram because of those modifications. Really? And so I was absolutely delighted. Yes. Yeah, your own class of sailboat. That's right. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, how long did it take you to build Adventure? For what period of time? Well, about well five years. Five years. I, wow. I st- and and that only because I had those summers. Yeah. I had those summers off. I mean, it's. So how many hours you estimate? Well, I, I I put in, I think I put in about. Oh gosh. Um, well, okay. I guess we'll we'll have to do the math. I'm not very good at math, but uh, you know. So basically, for three months, I worked at least forty hours a week, often. Longer, so that's about five hundred hours a summer. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So times, times five. five. Twenty five hundred hours, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, it's it's a it's a lot of yeah. It's a lot of hours. It's a big commitment, oh, and no. I remember reading somewhere that um, you know, as as you add these features or as you add different construction materials. There, there was like this graph. I think maybe it was a wooden boat or something like that. But th- there was this graph that showed uh, the complexity of a boat and the percentage of people who actually complete, uh, <laughs> you know, a boat if they start to build it. And you yeah. know, it starts with a really basic plywood, you know, skiff, and then you know that the completion rate is near 100 percent on that. You know, yeah. but then you go up, and when you start saying, okay, round bilge, which Adventure has. And then, you know, a complicated rig and all this yeah. other stuff. A boat like mine, I think most people starting out to build something like that, you know, the, the, the rate that people don't complete is like 90% or something like that or, or more. <laughs> and and I can understand why. And for me, you know, I, I'm not trying to brag or anything. It's just it's because I was a teacher. And I had summers off yeah. that I had the time to do that because otherwise there's no way yeah. I would have ever had the time to do a project like that because yeah. you, you need those big those chunks of time. Mm-hmm. So when did you, did you complete the boat in 2007? Is that right? Uh, well, she was launched in 2007. Here at Kayak Point near where we are today. Right. Yeah. And you had a christening and family and uh-huh. that cool, very sweet. My, my late grandmother christened her with uh-huh. a little bottle of champagne. Nice. The, um, the, the park staff would not allow us to break um, a, a, the bottle of champagne over the bow because they didn't want glass shards you know, on the beach where people were running around in bare feet. So, yeah. um, you know, which I thought was sensible enough. Uh, so my grandmother just poured the champagne over her bow. Oh, okay. But... The nice thing was we got to save the bottle, so I still have the bottle oh, as a very cool as a souvenir. <laughs> yeah, very um, cool. But but that was basically I could just do really basic rowing, or uh, we did like one sail at the very end of of two thousand seven. But I made the centerboard out of it was made out of aluminum, and I made it exactly according to Garden's plans. But the centerboard was about half an inch too long and so what happened was the centerboard the 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 aft part of the centerboard actually hit the trunk and so it wouldn't get, drop down oh and so uh it was it was really embarrassing i had to call my dad he had to come with his his aluminum boat and had to tow us all the way back because we'd sailed with the wind and then we were going to try to tack and we couldn't get the board down Oh. So so even though we had the current in our favor, we were just making so much leeway. We just kind of, you know, I think we gained maybe about fifty feet or so, tacking back and forth all afternoon. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so it's really important to have Pretty a keel. Crazy, yeah. Um, so uh, in August of two thousand nine, you started your trip from Sioux City, Iowa. Mm-hmm. You went down the river system to the Gulf of Mexico. An intercoastal waterway up to Maine. Uh-huh. So, give me some highlights of that trip. Oh wow! I know you have thousands um, of them. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so it's so hard to um, to choose. But well, you know, my friends in Sioux City saw me off, which was really neat. Um, in Omaha, there is a spectacular 
exhibit about a steamboat called the Bertrand. In, uh, excuse me. <clears throat> in uh, 1865, in April of 1865, just before the end of the Civil War, she struck a snag and sank in about uh, 12 feet of water. And her cargo was completely covered by mud, and she became a time capsule. Hmm. And they discovered her 100 years later in the 1960s, and there's this spectacular museum near Omaha that has all of her artifacts on display. Really? And it's it's unbelievable. It's just like one of the most amazing museums I've ever been to, and like nobody knows anything about it. It, it really is. I mean, she was bound for, uh, Bertrand was bound for Fort Benton, Montana, on the Missouri River, and then her cargo was bound for Virginia City in Montana. It was mining equipment. Mining equipment. Wow. Uh, well, well, but I mean, it, it was like a. It, she was like the Bertrand was like a a nineteenth century supermarket. I mean, because she had everything on board. I mean, clothes that were preserved in the mud, um, bottles of vegetables, and, and I mean, you could still see the florets on the broccoli. I mean, just just incredible. I mean, there there were there were uh, bottles of medicine, uh, bottles of whiskey that were still corked. I mean, all this stuff still had the had the cork in it. You, I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was just really unbelievable to see all this stuff. I mean, picks, shovels, everything that you could imagine. So that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I knew about that before I started the trip. Yeah, and. There were places that I saw that I thought were going to be amazing that were amazing and that I expected all along, like uh, New Orleans was incredible. Uh, Charleston, South Carolina is a mecca for American history lovers like me. Um, You know, D.C., New York, there were just lots of places I thought were going to be great and they were. But I think probably one of the best things that happened to me on the trip is stuff that I experience that I never expected. Like, for example, White Cloud, Kansas. White Cloud, Kansas. That sounds pretty obscure. It's a, it's a tiny town on the Missouri River of about 200 people. It's named after a, a local Native American chief uh, named White Cloud. And they had this little dock on the Missouri there, and I tied up to it, a little municipal dock. And uh, it said Marina, White Cloud, Kansas. And there was just this tiny little dock and an outhouse up there. But it was great. And they were having a uh, an antique and like rummage sale. The whole town was doing this. It's something that they do twice a year. And it just so happened that weekend was the weekend. Oh, wow. And I got to talk with all the locals. And they had all these really <clears throat> neat whitewashed buildings that were all built out of lumber brought up steam, uh, upstream by steamboats because there's there's no timber there that's all that's all on the plains so all of these old buildings were built in the 19th century and they were all built out of out of lumber from steamboats wow i, I mean that they got off of steamboats yeah right but um so, yeah, I mean, stuff like that, that I never would have... My motor broke down. Uh, I, I had an electric motor at first, uh, kind of naively. Uh, I had an electric motor. Oh, really? Well, you know, I wanted to be more environmentally friendly and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. But 
He had one of those German. Did you have one of the German yeah. rigs? Uh-huh. What do they call those? So, Torquedo. Torquedo, right, uh-huh. right. And I think it's a good motor. It's just that my particular motor that I had, there was something wrong with the wiring, and so it short-circuited. Uh-oh. And, uh, and we've since had it repaired, and it works fine now. But I had to uh, buy a, a gas engine. And uh, I did that at, it was a, a four-horse Mercury four-cycle. And luckily for me, the folks at the St. Joseph... Uh, outboard Motor and Yacht Club in St. Joseph, Missouri, adopted me, took me in, and helped me buy that motor. And the electric motor would clamp on the combing of the boat, so I didn't have a motor mount. Mm -hmm. Well, the gas motor wouldn't clamp on the, you know, so I had to actually buy and install a mounting bracket for that motor while the boat was in the water. <laughs> I mean, it was extremely difficult to get everything level and stuff. But luckily, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the, uh, the gudgeons for the rudder, the, the, little, the holes that the rudder goes into, um, the brackets for those, of course, were put on when the boat was out of the water, and so they were level. Oh. And so I could go off of those. Use that for a reference point. As a reference point. But, yeah. I mean, it was really tough wow. when the boat was in the water. I mean, it was yeah. very, very tough. Yeah. And uh, But we did it. We, we, put the, we put the motor, uh, the mounting bracket on, and we put the motor on. And, and as, as embarrassing as it is for uh, a true sailor to admit, had, had I not had that motor, the trip would not have been possible. Mm. I, I'd still be somewhere in Georgia. <laughs> Right now, probably. <laughs> tacking I mean, somewhere. Ta- tacking back and forth. I mean, <laughs> I ended up running under power, you know, a lot more than I ran under sail. Yeah, yeah. But uh, let's see, some other unexpected gems uh, on the trip. Well, there was, when I left Sioux City, I told a good friend of mine, I said, you know, the state that I'm going to travel through the most... I'm actually looking forward to the least. And he said, which state is that? And I said, Florida. It's got a really long coastline, and I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be traveling through it <clears throat> the most, but I'm looking forward to it, to it the least. He said, why? I said, well, it's, you know, it's all Disney World. It's all concrete and condos. And, and he said, oh, no, there's a real Florida. He said, there's a real Florida, and you'll find it. And he was right. I did. Yeah. And... Um, I, I did, and, and it was fabulous. <clears throat> the Big Bend, or Nature Coast of Florida, as it's called, where the, the panhandle of Florida starts to curve down into the peninsula on the Gulf side, that is old Florida. That's real southern Florida. If you want to go and experience old Florida, that's where it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the reason is because, I mean, there's really no tourist attractions there other than fishing. There's some fishing there. Uh, so there aren't, there aren't many tourist attractions, and most boaters avoid that area because it's very shallow and very difficult to navigate. But it's some of, it was some of, the, best, some of the best parts on the trip. And that's where the really. Suwannee River is, which the song was written about, which has its own story to it. Yes. Um, <laughs> famous famous uh, Civil War-era composer Stephen Foster, who wrote that song, 
uh, never lived in the vicinity of the Suwannee River. And in fact, he never even saw the Suwannee River. According to legend, he, um, he just looked at an atlas and he saw the Suwannee River and he's like, wow, that sounds southern. I think I think we'll think we'll go with that. Um, so he's out for the song and never did see that river. If he had, though, he would find that he was right. I mean, it's 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 very southern. Yeah, around the Suwannee River. Yeah. I mean, you see the. Um, of course, when I was there, it was very cold. Uh, it was a record-breakingly cold winter. Ooh. That that winter. Yeah. And uh, there was actually ice in parts of the Suwannee River, they said. And like the locals said, they said that never happens. Wow. And they've never, I mean, people who've lived there all their life say that they've never seen ice in the Suwannee River. Really? And so, yeah. Interesting. Um, so you avoided a couple of hurricanes too, but you got some effect from that. Um, Adventure and I dealt with not one, not two, but three hurricanes over the course of our trip. Um, the first was in um, the first was uh, in November of 2009 there was uh, a hurricane called Ida that came through the Gulf and it was downgraded to a tropical storm by the time it hit the Gulf Coast so there was no damage really on the Gulf Coast it was just a, a, a storm you know a nasty storm. But when Ida broke up over the Appalachian Mountains, um, she, I, I guess you'd say she, mm-hmm. uh, dumped about 12 inches of rain in the Appalachian Mountains. And so the rivers that we were traveling on, and I, I say we, meaning Adventure and I, and then by then I had met this guy named Buzz, who was a retired Vietnam veteran, and uh, he was traveling in his own little 15-foot boat. And we traveled together for a while. Anyway, um, uh, we were traveling on the Tom Bigby River at that point, which flows, it becomes the Mobile River and then flows into Mobile, Alabama. And we were about 200 miles from the coast in this little town called Demopolis, Alabama, when Ida struck. And the Tom Bigby River flooded and flooded to such an extent they closed the locks on the river, and so navigation of the river was basically closed down for for about three weeks. We were stuck in Demopolis because you couldn't get through the locks, huh? right? Really? Well, they reopened the locks, but um, <clears throat> but the the locals urged us not to go until the river level dropped mm-hmm. because they just said it's it's just too dangerous. Yeah, and. I, I am never one to ignore local advice. Uh, a, a, a lot of people, a lot of people do, and they're the ones who end up getting, you know, running aground or capsizing or whatever. I mean, if the locals usually know what's going on, mm-hmm. and if they say don't go, I don't go. Yeah. And so I didn't, and we we were there for three weeks. Um, then the other two came at the very end of the trip. There was Hurricane Earl, which which was a hurricane. That that hit uh, the New England, and I was uh, in Massachusetts at that time, and so I ducked into Boston. As it turns out, uh, Earl did very little damage in Boston. There was almost you know nothing. It was just, just a lot of rain and wind, basically like a sto- storm. And but you know I had to go into Boston and and take shelter in Boston because of that because of Hurricane mm-hmm. Earl. Mm-hmm. 
And then when I finally, when we got to Maine, uh, I was listening to the weather report. And, you know, the, the size of the waves usually correlates to the wind, right? I mean, they'll say, you know, wind five to ten knots, waves, you know, one to two feet or something like that. Well, so I listened to the weather report on the radio and it said uh, winds, you know, uh, five to ten knots from the northwest, waves... 15 to 18 feet. And I was like, what? Um, I, I just, I, I didn't understand what was, what was going on. Um, and the more I listened to the weather report, you know, at first I thought, I thought I had misheard or something. And I listened again. And then it turns out there was a hurricane called Igor, which did not, hit the United States anywhere. It was way out in the ocean. Um, I think maybe the tail end of it caught Nova Scotia. But it it went way out to sea, but it generated these huge swells. And so I decided to duck in to a hurricane hole, to, to, uh, as they call them in Maine, (laughs) hurricane hole, to to wait out the, the, the waves. And so I went up the Harrisicket River to South Freeport, Maine, and that turned out to be the final destination of my trip. Okay. I was going to go farther up the coast, but uh, it was getting late in the season. It was already mid-September by that point, and I was going to go travel to see the people at Wooden Boat Magazine, but they told me that they were going to pull their docks out of the water, and so there wasn't going to be any facilities for me up there, and so I just decided to call it quit so i just ended up driving up there oh okay okay to see them so along this so it was about a 14 month trip roughly the whole thing it was in terms of the traveling on the trip yeah it was one day shy of 13 months okay i left sioux city on august 17th 2009 i arrived in south freeport maine on september 16th 2010 okay okay Right. So, so one day shy of thirteen months. Okay. So, were there was um, uh, tell us about maybe the uh, along the trip a time when you felt like you were in danger because of the seas or other things that were happening around you. You know, it's 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 funny that that you ask that, and and like everybody has asked that question, and I'm doing an article for Wooden Boat Magazine that's supposed to come out in March of 2012. And they, of course, that was the first question they asked. When did you ever feel in danger? And the common assumption, which makes sense, the assumption that everybody has is that the most dangerous part of the trip or the place where I felt the most threatened was when I was on the open ocean, the open Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. Because there were several times when I had to make open ocean crossings, passages. Um. But actually, the the ironic thing is that, and and this is very counterintuitive, but deep water is actually safer for the most part than shallow water is. And the reason is that um, in shallow water, when the wind whips up, the waves come up very fast and you have these really sharp breaking waves. 
um, in shallow water. Whereas on the open ocean where it's really deep, you have this huge mass of water, it's very deep. And so, you know, the waves don't hit the shallow um, bottom and start to break. They become these big rolling swells, which are a lot safer for boats because you just kind of ride up and up and down on them. I mean, they'll make you seasick mm-hmm. more more than the breaking waves will, but they're a lot safer in terms of being on your boat. And so, I mean, had I been caught in a storm on the Atlantic, I'm sure that that would have been very, very scary. But I wasn't. I, I watched the weather very carefully and would only go out if the wind was less than 15 knots at the most. Usually I preferred 5 to 10 yeah. And I'd just stay in I would just stay in a harbor if if the weather wasn't cooperating. So No, actually the scariest moment on the entire trip was on the Mississippi River. Really? And people yeah, that's exactly what everybody says. They say, Really? <clears throat> yeah. Um the the NOAA was predicting a, a big storm and um I was really anxious to get to this marina that was up the Tennessee River where I was going to travel. I, I didn't go all the way down the Mississippi. I uh, At the uh, confluence of the Mississippi and the Ohio, I went up the Ohio and then up the Tennessee River and then down the Tom Bigby River uh, and then Mobile River to Mobile. That's where most pleasure boats go now. That's the pleasure boat route from the Midwest to the Gulf because the lower Mississippi is almost entirely commercial. Hmm. And there's very, very few facilities for transient boats. For example, between St. Louis and um, New Orleans, which is a distance on the river of over a thousand miles, there's one marina. (laughs) You're kidding. Wow. No, there's a marina in Memphis. It's strictly a commercial waterway. Huh? Yeah. There's one marina in Memphis... In Greenville, I think it's Greenville, Mississippi, uh, I was told that there was a uh, yacht club. But um, the guy who told me about it said, don't stay there overnight. It's like in a really bad part of town. So he said, like, you tie up during the day, go to like a grocery store and get some supplies and then go anchor out somewhere. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> now, there's some towns on the Mississippi that are working on changing that. It's kind of funny because... There are these towns that exist on the rivers, and the reason that they exist is because of the rivers. Mm. You know, that's why the towns are there. But they turned their backs on the rivers after, you know, steamboat navigation, stuff like that stopped. A lot of them built these big flood walls, and so they have nothing to do with their waterfronts. But now that's starting to come back. They're starting oh. to redevelop their waterfronts and realize and, there's some commerce there. Right. Right. Opportunity for revenue and so on. Right. So, for example, uh, Natchez, Mississippi, which is a town that I just loved. I thought it was a gorgeous, gorgeous place. Um, they are thinking about putting in a marina. And th- there's other cities that are going to do that. But for right now, uh, the lower Mississippi is not recommended by most people. I see. So we, I did what, what they call the 10-Tom Waterway, the mm-hmm. Tennessee-Tom Bigbee Waterway, where they link them with canals. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I, so I was anxious to get to um, a marina on the 10-Tom Waterway. And so even though they were calling for strong winds, against my better judgment, I I went out on the Mississippi and I rode a ways. And 
aside from some strong headwinds, there really wasn't much problem that day. But then I couldn't find a good protected harbor for uh, the evening. Usually what I would try to do is I would try to uh, put adventure in a creek or um, failing that behind what they call a wing dike. And wing dikes are a big pile of rocks that the Army Corps of Engineers puts in the river um, about 45 degrees to the bank, uh, aimed downstream. And so they they basically keep the flow of the water in the channel. And uh, uh, so I found the, the ideal thing to find was sometimes they would have wing dikes that came out from the the bank at a 45 degree angle and then they had another line of rocks that went parallel to the river and then there was like a gap and then a little bit below that there would be another wing dike so that was a perfect harbor okay because i could just go in there and it was completely protected from all sides well i couldn't find that before dark all i found was a regular wing dike but there was a sandbar there and so i thought okay well this is you know this is relatively well protected and so I went in behind that. Well, then they kept calling for a storm, and then the predictions got bigger and bigger. And then they issued a tornado watch, mm. which means that, you know, a tornado might happen. Then they issued a tornado warning, which mm. means that tornadoes are imminent, yeah. that, that, that they're, they're going to happen. And, of course, they listed all these counties, and one of the counties was the county in Illinois, where I was. I think it was Alton <laughs> County. <laughs> And I remember looking out of Adventure's tent, because uh, she had a boom tent that I would sleep under, and I unzipped it and I looked out and it looked like it looked like there was a cement wall on the horizon that was coming straight towards me. It just looked like this giant wall of clouds that was moving straight towards us. And I zipped up the tent and about ten minutes later, uh it felt like like someone had taken a fire hose and aimed it at my boat. Like they just sprayed my boat with a fire hose. So much water soaked in through the tent that I had to bail. Oh. I mean, it was, it, was, it was so heavy, like so much water was coming down. I, like, I've never seen anything like that in my whole life. Oh, my goodness. And um, the wind was blowing so hard against the boat that the road or anchor line stretched and all of a sudden I started feeling that adventure was hitting something luckily she was hitting against the sandbar and not the rocks of the wing dike because she could have hit the rocks and then been really damaged but the sand was fairly soft so I had to climb out on deck while there was lightning and wind and I had to you know by hand try to haul my boat against that wind that anchor road and tie it off uh you know shorten the road and then I was afraid the anchor would drag and all that kind of stuff it was I was they didn't call off the tornado warning until four o'clock that morning and there was no way I was going to be able to sleep you know so I was up until four in the morning oh wow and basically I mean, I, 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 sl- you know, I think I kind of curled up in my rain gear after the tornado warning had been called off, and I think maybe I slept for about forty-five minutes, something like that. 
And then I woke up again, and then I was like, ah, I'm just going to pack up and go. And so I <laughs> just out of dodge. J- just packed up my stuff and oh, continued funny. downstream. Wow. Wow, pretty crazy. But the next day, a giant flock of white pelicans flew over me. That was pretty neat. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap it up here, Tug. I really appreciate you joining me today. Um, do you have any contact information if somebody wanted to email you, for instance? Oh, sure. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Yeah, what's your email address? Uh, well, it's uh, T-U-G underscore B-U-S-E at yahoo.com. Okay. So it's basically Tug underscore Busey at yahoo.com. Okay, Just cool. the, We don't spell Busey with the Y. Mm-hmm. Just B-U-S-E. B-U-S-E. Okay, yep. very good. Uh, any party comments for our listeners today? Um, well, Mark Twain wrote, you'll regret more the things you did not do in life than the things that you did. So, you know, cast off the bow lines and uh, sail off into the sunset. I mean, something like that. Okay. And... I've talked to so many people who said who said things like, "Well, okay, you know, I'll do that when I retire, and yeah, you know, or I'll do that, you know, well, I'll wait off on that." And, and and I can understand that because I mean, you know, people have jobs, they have they've got families, they have obligations. I was lucky that um, that my the circumstances in my life just happened to come together to allow me to do that trip. But what I would say to that is I think a lot of times people could do something and they don't. You know, like they they do have the opportunity or they do have the money or they do have the time or they could make the time and they decide not to for whatever reason they talk themselves out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would encourage people to have adventures. It's it's what, I think it's what what makes life really worth living. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Tug. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for taking the time to let me interview you, Tug. I really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. It was really fun to hear your story. And I hope all of my listeners enjoyed that. Well, we're going to wrap it up here for today, folks. Just a reminder that I really would appreciate it if you would connect with me by subscribing to my email list. And you can do that on my website. Or you can email me at dan at hookedonwoodenboats.com. Please send pictures of boats that you've built or own, wooden boats. I'd love to see them. And occasionally I put them up on the website to share with other folks, and that's a lot of fun. Also, if you'd like to provide a little financial support for me, uh, you can go to my website to the resources page, and on there is a list of books and Wooden Boat Magazine and a couple things you can purchase through Amazon. So if you click on one of those items, which takes you to Amazon, then if you make any uh, purchase on Amazon, doesn't have to be what's on my website, but anything on Amazon, I get paid a 4% commission, which I would really appreciate that. Anyway, uh, until next week, keep the sunny side up and the barnacled side down. Wooden Boat Dan, over and out. Have a great week. <laughs>